1: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to trylifemd.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at try That's trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M D.com.
0: This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.
1: Hello, this episode of Cheerful Book Club is a conversation that Ed had with Elizabeth Day about How to Fail, which is a book based on her hugely popular podcast of the same name. They chat about our attitudes to failure and how we can learn to cope with it.
0: Cheerful Book Club, talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.
1: So I'm delighted that on Cheerful Book Club, we have Elizabeth Day, who has written a book, How to Fail, based on her incredibly successful four series in podcast thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you so much for having me i love the idea of a cheerful book club
1: yeah well indeed and look i really think you've done something very important which is getting us to talk about failure i've got a lot to say um uh, uh, let me ask you first of all what prompted you to do the podcast first of all and then and then the book
2: well, the short answer is I got dumped <laughs> right? and um, this happened in October 2017 and it was the end of a two-year relationship and it was ended out of the blue in quite a brutal way and it was three weeks before my 39th birthday and I just found myself looking back at my 30s and realising that they had been a decade of enormous transition. So while I had been moderately professionally successful, I'd made a living as a journalist and I had published four novels. That, sounds,
1: that sounds like very modest.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a definition of an egregious humble brag. I'm no, sorry, I, I, think think a,
1: re- I think it's a definition of somebody who's probably brought up thinking that only, you know, only if they became president of the United yeah. States would they have truly been a success.
2: <laughs> None of my novels won the Booker Prize. Well, that's the definition of failure. <laughs> um, but but personally, things had been derailed. So I had got married and divorced. I had tried and failed to have children. I had two rounds of IVF unsuccessfully and then I had a miscarriage at 3 months. And then after that this this new relationship had ended. And so my life had not taken the shape that I had anticipated and hoped that it would take. And When I was in that frame of mind, I felt so sad that I wasn't listening to pop music because it always triggers a really emotional response when you've just broken up with someone. I was listening to a lot of podcasts and one of the podcasts I was listening to, as well as Reasons to Be Cheerful, was Esther Perel's Where Should We Begin, which is all about opening the door into a kind of couples counselling session and about honest, open, intimate conversations where we share vulnerability and those two things connected in my head. And I was like, how great would it be if we could broaden the conversations that I'm having with my friends about how we feel about life and where we are. Um, and and then I just also realised, looking back at my 30s, that the times of greatest growth for me had actually come out of the times of crisis. And that's not to say that I think <laughs> I should go around ad- like actively pursuing failure, but it just meant that it had pushed me to really analyse where I wanted to be and who I was and what I most desired. And that was the genesis of the podcast.
1: I mean, haven't you put your finger on something incredibly important? I think you have, which is we really don't like to talk about failure as a society. I mean, we really, it's, a, it is a, it is like a, it's like a big taboo. I mean, the, the, I, I suspect in the sort of, you know, your book I'm sure is doing well, but the sort of failure section in the bookshops uh, is less than the sort of success
2: Definitely. I, well, I think social media is a force for good in so many ways, but it's also somewhere where you feel you're constantly comparing your life to other people's version of curated perfection. Yeah, And because we are increasingly connected, not only to people we know, but also to celebrities, there's this sense that we're constantly trying to aspire to lives that ultimately are beyond our reach because I can't be Gwyneth Paltrow because I don't have a personal macrobiotic chef and I'm not willing to work out two hours a day because I don't have time or the money to do that. Not to
1: speak of everything else.
2: Exactly. And not to speak of the talent. (laughs) uh,
1: No, no, I didn't mean that. (laughs) All
2: right, Ed. Um, (laughs) No, but also, but but we're being encouraged to feel like they're just like us because of things like Instagram, because of disintermediated access. And, And you're right that failure has become quite taboo and there's a great deal of shame around it and for me I was just very keen to kind of open up that discussion and to and to release that feed, that balloon of shame.
1: What what is failure, do you think?
2: I think failure is when things don't go according to plan. And what's interesting about that is that then you have to question the plan. Whose plan is it? <laughs> and why have you come up with it for yourself? Because for me, if I looked at my own personal experience, I had just always grown up assuming I would get married and have children. And there was a lot of kind of cultural baggage that I I grew up in the 80s. So there were a lot of rom-coms where it just ended in that way. Those films ended in that way. And as a young girl in the 80s, I was raised at school to be pleasant and pliant and nice. And I wasn't and raised... to play tennis. Yes, but, but to play tennis <laughs> miserably badly. And um, therefore, I had this narrative in my head predicated on a version of a future me but what I now realise is that the future you doesn't exist. That by the time you get to the age when you're meant in your head to be doing things, you might want something totally different. And actually, it's limiting to have a very restrictive plan because my life is richer because it hasn't gone according to plan.
1: And you've talked to lots of people now for the podcast and, and you talked to them also for the book. What's the thing you've learnt most from it about this, this thing of failure? What's the single biggest lesson, if that's not an unfair question? No,
2: that I mean, I've genuinely found doing my podcast life-changing for me. And one of the more recent interviews I did was with a man called Mo Gaudat, who was a chief business officer at Google X. And he was incredibly successful, but was not happy. And so developed an algorithm for happiness, applying his sort of scientific and engineering skills and doing 12 years of research and coming up with an equation that he claims can make everyone oh happy. My god! And he was astonishing, not only because he'd written about this, but because it was put to the test when his son, Ali, died tragically aged 21 during a routine operation. And Mo was therefore confronted with that challenge of going on living, even though this devastating thing had happened. And he said to me, you exist separately from your thoughts, which is actually a profound and somewhat Buddhist philosophy, which is that... Your brain produces thoughts as organic matter in the same way that other organs produce organic matter. You would not think you were defined by your blood because it's pumped around your body by your heart. You would not think you were defined by your urine. (laughs) So why would you think that you're defined by your thoughts? Your brain is processing and is giving you uh, names for things that you're witnessing. But when your brain is telling you you're incredibly anxious and you're a failure and your daughter doesn't love you anymore because you've just had a row with her, your brain is not actually an objective witness and is not always telling you the truth and the way that he does this on a practical level is he gives his brain a name he calls his brain Becky because Becky was a really annoying girl at his school and um, when his brain is pumping this negative narrative into his thoughts he stops his brain and he says Becky, I would like you to give me evidence for this assertion and if you don't have evidence I would like you to replace that negative thought with a positive one and he claims that you can train your brain in this way
1: How did the algorithm either help or hinder facing his personal tragedy.
2: He said something rather beautiful about that. He said, I woke up every morning after Ali died, and for the first months and years, I was completely crushed with grief and devastation. And my first thought on waking was, Ali died, he died. And then he said, but I thought that I could use a different word and say, yes, he died, but he also lived, and I choose to celebrate that. The fact that he lived, and actually, it's the same thought but seen in a different way.
1: Wow, um, I mean, the, the, reading the book, I suppose the the lesson that you write about the most struck me was, and correct me if I've got the wrong impression here, which is is the sort of failing to be yourself, doing things other people want, wanting to be like, not trusting yourself. Mm lesson. I feel that's the sort of thread going through it, that you were wanting to please your parents. And then I'm sure it's true of all of us, then wanting to please your housemates in your 20s, then, you know, your boyfriend, husband. Am I right in thinking that's the sort of...
2: You're completely right. It's very perceptive of you. Yeah, I spent a lot of time being a people pleaser. And what I now realise was that in doing that, I was outsourcing my sense of self because I didn't have a lot of certainty about who I was. And I was in a series of long-term romantic relationships from the age of 19 to the age of 36. And when you're in a kind of long-term relationship, it's quite easy to do that. (laughs) It's quite easy to shape yourself around the contours left by someone else's presence. And that's what I did the whole time. I was like, if I'm relentlessly perfect, no one will ever leave me or no one will ever find me unlovable. And I will ultimately be rewarded. And of course, that's not true. And it's a terrible way to live your life. So that's a
1: sort of fear of failing others, that that, that in a way you judge yourself. Yeah. Because I'm just working out how it relates to failure, but it's sort of... If I fail others, I'm a failure. Yes. Um, in their al- eyes, in a way.
2: Yes, and also you're failing to get to know yourself. So whilst people-pleasing can seem like a very selfless thing, I think it's taken to its extreme as ultimately selfish, because it means that you've never taken the time to get to know who you are, and to face up to the fact that you are very far from perfect, but that that is a good thing, ultimately, because it makes you more human. And once I embraced my... Flaws and my vulnerabilities. And once I was truly honest about myself, it just became a much more liberating way to live. And for me, that crash point came when my marriage ended. And I was just forced to confront a great deal of shame that I felt that I hadn't made that work.
1: It's very interesting. I I want to sort of come on to the broader lessons, um, which I've sort of tried to think about in relation to your book. and And it has made me think a lot. Let me start, because you do write about this, I think, what's the relationship between failure and success?
2: I think that you can't appreciate success without having experienced failure first. So I start the book with a Truman Capote quote, which is, failure is the condiment that gives success its flavour. And I truly believe that in the same way that I believe that there's such a lot written about happiness at the moment and happiness being the ultimate goal of human existence. And whilst it's very nice to be happy, I also think that other emotions get a bad press because of its cultural precedence. And actually, sadness can be a beautiful thing and can be the impetus to create great art. And in the same way, I think failure teaches you to confront yourself as you really are. And it's sometimes a nudge from the universe in a slightly different direction that can end up being so much richer as a result and can ironically lead to greater successes. So, the very obvious example in my life is the How to Fail podcast and the subsequent book have been, without doubt, the most successful things I've ever done professionally. And that has only come as a result of all the things that have gone wrong.
1: And what about failure that isn't a route to success? I mean, losing a general election. <laughs> Just it sort of hypothetically. Like you're speaking huh, uh, from experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hypothetically, that sort of springs to mind. And of course, there's compensation. I suppose. So I'm I'm definitely convinced by the sort of you know Gareth Southgate you know in a way he missed a penalty etc cetera, etc cetera, and then he got redemption as England manager but I mean there are painful failures whether that's you know losing a general election something that happens in your personal life I mean there are just failures
2: yeah. I totally agree with you. And I'm uh, obsessed with getting you on the podcast because I want to talk to you about right. losing a general election. Okay. And what's that like? That'll be,
1: I'll look forward to that. Yeah, Because uh. I think
2: politicians, it's almost like an extreme version of auditioning. And I don't understand how you can cope with that mentally. Anyway, that's a whole other of discussion. Hard. Yeah, it must be so hard to divorce it because it's so much about your personal beliefs. So um, I think you're absolutely right. There are failures that are failures and will always seem like failures for the rest of your life. And you will always feel sadness and pain because of them. And in my life, it's not losing a general election; it's the fact that I don't have children. Sure. And that is. Something- and I'm not comparing
1: losing a general election to, not, you know, to no. miscarriages. Just I know to- that uh, yeah. I did that. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: but that is the cause of a great deal of sadness for me. But I'm also at peace with it. And I have chosen to be at peace with it. I have chosen to live with that sadness and I live with it still. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm Pollyanna-ish and ish like, and everything has turned out beautifully because the flip side of not having a child is that I can fly to New York at a moment's notice. It's not that, it's that I've experienced this and what that loss has given me is like a deeper texture in my life because I've had this experience that I never thought I would have, which I mean, is what it is to be a woman without children and age 40.
1: I think I think it's what somebody I know says, digesting the failure. You know, it's sort of like a digestive system thing. Yeah. And maybe the tendency is to sort of not digest it. You know what I mean? It's just to look for the upside. Totally. Well, oh, you know, well, this has happened, but, yeah, you know, like my, in my case, it would be, well, I lost the general election, but, you know, I can see my children more. And, you know, then I'm not going to be a completely absent father, which I would have been as Prime Minister. You know what I mean? But I think that, and I think that is important to me, just like I'm sure there are important things to you out of the sadnesses you've had, but it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't address the failure. It doesn't
2: metabolise it. You're right. It's a diversionary tactic sometimes. Yeah. And as you say, that's not to say that there aren't positives that come from things like that. But I do think there is a lot to be said for sitting with failure yeah. looking it square in the face and asking failure what it is trying to teach you because every single time something has caused me upset and it hasn't worked out the way that I thought it would it really has taught me something integral to who I now am and therefore I wouldn't change it that's the weird thing it's mm-hmm. like and and I think a lot of people would feel the same way if you ask them would you would you eliminate this period of your life that caused you such a great deal of pain? Would you eliminate that relationship that ended so badly? And I think the vast majority of people would say no, knowing that the knock on effect is that they are would be totally different as a result. I mean,
1: that is true. I wouldn't eliminate having been the leader. I mean, I would have eliminated the loss of the election. No, but I mean I think there's a serious I think yeah. there's a serious point there. Let me just ask you about this point, which is the way failure res- relates to our sort of relatively individualistic culture I, I was very struck in the book that when you talked about your ivf it was like your i think it was something like your bodies failed to respond to the drug so yeah. it was like it was you or you know people talk about beating cancer or winning the race to get a place at a top university i mean it is very striking isn't it that it's sort of failure is linked to sort of fault In other words, it's your. And I'm not saying I'm not denying it's agency in some cases, but it is very. It feels like it is. It is our culture makes not succeeding at something that you wanted to do. I think that's broadly your description at the beginning. Always our fault.
2: Into a personal thing, exactly. And actually, failure just is how you respond to it is in your gift. And failing at something doesn't make you a failure necessarily. And the IVF thing was really interesting because I could not think of a single other medical condition that has that terminology attached to it. So when I was going through IVF, first of all, I was always treated by men uh, at the senior level. And secondly, the language that they used was very much, you are failing to respond to the drugs. Um, Your womb is an inhospitable environment. Oh, my God. you have an incompetent cervix this is literally the language and and no wonder women feel such a degree of shame when they are failing to live their biological imperative and failing to have children and failing to be a mother and it was just sort of mind-blowing to me and actually when i was going through the process i didn't realize it at the time i didn't think to question it it's only retrospectively that i've had this realization i wonder
1: whether it isn't more general you know the people who are getting, you know, who have cancer and who have like, you know, chemotherapy, you you know, I think you can well imagine people being told your body's failing to respond to the drugs or, you know, the tumour is failing to respond. You know, is that phrase beating cancer, you know, you know, Battling. I'm determined to battle, fight. And that isn't to say that the mindset of having cancer, you know, I'm sure the mindset is important and I'm not de- denigrating that, but it is. It feels like it it's sort of this is it this is embedded in a sort of deeper problem.
2: In a way it goes back to what Mo Gaudat was saying about us existing separately yeah. from our organs. Because there are our bodies, but our bodies are sort of avatars, really. A lot because we exist separately from them. We have a consciousness that we can observe our own thoughts. and our own. So I think a lot of the terminology of medicine sometimes makes the mistake of assuming that your body and your soul are one and the same. God, this is so deep. This is so <laughs> We're deep. We're going deep.
1: Why don't we talk about failure as a society was where I wanted to go next. It is very, you know, what I said earlier, the failure section in the, in the bookshops it's got Elizabeth Day in it. Uh, Corner of the market. But you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, I think I, I, I said to you before we came on air, you know, I, Alistair Campbell wrote this book called Winners. And I had this sort of thought floated through my mind uh, about a year ago, which was, you know, maybe I should write a book called Losers. And I thought, oh, God, that's going to make me out to be a loser. Well, maybe people know that anyway. But, you know, it's sort of at a trivial level, isn't it? It's like, how are you doing? You know the passing. Oh, I'm doing fine. Mm. People, it's it's hard for people. You know, I'm really shit. Actually, you know.
2: Yeah. Well, I think people are scared. Of, yeah. Of claiming it's, it, and actually, people
1: are scared of claiming it. And people, maybe other people are scared of it sort of being con- contagious. Yes,
2: you know? I totally agree. Uh, what I realized, having written the book, is that the things that I thought of as my most personal failures, the things that were most difficult to write about actually have turned out to be the most universal. It's almost as if there's been this collective sigh of relief yeah. that someone has said it. Yeah, And I think that so much of our society in Britain is, first of all, built around doing well at exams in yeah. schools yeah. And, and going into further education if you can, and then going into a job where you get a set number of promotions and you'll have a set number of pay rises and that's how you can value yourself. And it's a culture where we haven't historically been encouraged to talk about our emotions. Yes. And um, I have spent quite a bit of time in America and I find that I spend a lot of time in LA and that particular culture, whilst it has its negatives, is very much about talking and therapy and being open. And I think that I've been really influenced by that. And I'm very, I'm naturally quite an open person anyway. And um I therefore think that talking... I mean, Brené Brown has this phrase, which is about if you put shame in a Petri dish and you sprinkle it with openness and conversation and sharing, then it shrivels and dies. And so the more that we talk about it and the more that we assimilate it, the better. And I would say that in a school culture as well, that I'm a big believer in trying the best you possibly can and trying to get the best exam results you can. But if having tried your best... You don't get the result that you wanted. Being taught that that is okay, and that there are ways to get through that, is a very important thing.
1: I mean, it's really interesting. You should say this because my wife Justine and I, well, we talk about these things a bit. But but the thing I she's always said to me, ever since I met her, is that her parents sort of taught her just do your best. They didn't say to her you've got to try and be x i mean i don't think my parents said that to me but but do your best and if it doesn't work well you've done your best yeah and i know that sounds a bit sort of trite maybe but i think that is quite important because because it sort of accepts that you can't necessarily Control the outcome. It goes back to this thing about fault, doesn't it?
2: Yes. And it goes into the beauty of the task itself rather than the beauty of the outcome, which on a deeper level also is about the beauty of you as a person beyond what you do. And I think for a long time I suffered under the misguided notion that people only liked me because I was achieving at things. And actually, that's not true. <laughs> People like me, hopefully, because like, I'm fun to spend time with down the pub rather than, oh, I did really well and got nominated for this award.
1: That's really important. I want to show you a graph. <gasps>
2: Ooh. This is so Ed Miliband. Yeah, this, exactly, this is what I expect from exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs>
1: I'm nerding out here. Uh, is it
2: a graph of general election results? No. <laughs> oh, no.
1: That, uh, that is extremely painful. It's a thing I saw a couple of months ago in the, in the Washington Post. And it, it's, it's, a, it's an article based on an academic study about the parent trap. Uh, and it says, the greater a country's income inequality, the likely our parents to push their kids to work hard. And it is an absolutely fascinating article based on some academic research. And I'm going to get to the graph So basically this is a graph of parents in countries emphasising hard work to their children versus inequality. So inequality is on the x-axis and the parents who are emphasising hard work are on the y-axis.
2: So is this the highest inequality here?
1: This is both the highest inequality and the highest hard work. And look at the graph. That You know, basically Sweden is the least unequal country, the most equal country on the graph. And the parents' sort of hard, you know, hard work is much less of an emphasis. And right at the top, in terms of inequality and hard work is china now uh, you know you can sometimes you can draw graphs and they don't really show, but i think that i can't help there is something in this because, it, because you talk about i think in your book about the sort of pressure of you know parental upbringing and i felt i sort of had that yeah you must um, have done. and
2: also you have an older brother i had an older sister who was brilliant at everything yeah
1: and that's and that's it's sort of, you know, uh, important. Um,
2: but how do they define hard work in this? I
1: think it's 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 parents who say... I think they give parents different qualities, like imagination, hard work, and other things. Uh, and they say, what's important to you about your kids, what, about what your kids should do?
2: That's so interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting, yeah. isn't it?
1: Because, I, you know, I think it's like the fear of falling thing.
2: And the drive for betterment yeah. through the generations that... Uh, how interesting yeah
1: um so i think that's kind of part of it now i wanted to ask then the sort of what should we do about all this
2: i don't know i just wrote a book no i know (laughs)
1: but you're the you're the you're the expert on failure i mean that in the nicest way uh so here's some thoughts i've got just see whether you think they're remotely useful i mean maybe we need to talk about we need to teach failure in schools I mean, teach what it means to – I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like schools should be much more passing exams anyway and, you know, mindfulness and all that. I think that's all that. All that is really important. But I think there is also something, um, you know, about this. And I, I sort of feel, if I'm honest, that, uh, you know, I, I lost the general election in 2015. We didn't really – we haven't – we talked to our kids occasionally. We have talked to our kids occasionally about this, but not really – and, you know, I think it, there is a sort of teachable moment in any of one's own failures for your kids. Definitely.
2: Maybe. I think I don't mean to sound really namby pamby about it, but I really think that having more and more conversations like this one is extremely helpful. I was very, very surprised when it was about two months ago, a male friend of mine was going through a divorce and he sent me a message saying, I have used the word failure for the first time. <laughs> He had spoken the word failure for the first time about him. And I was so astonished that he had not felt able to claim that word before his 40s, basically. And it strikes me that so many people must be suffering unnecessary shame about something that happens to all of us. And the more conversations there are and the more conversations in school there are, the better. And I also think that there's something about workplace culture That goes deeper than just failure, but goes into what it is to work as a woman and as a man and as a non-binary person in office spaces right now. Because historically, the workplace has been geared around the needs of an alpha male. yeah, Yeah. (laughs) And actually, that doesn't leave a lot of space for the men to fail, let alone the women to succeed. and there needs to be just more integration of, of, of ways of doing things that places more emphasis on collaboration and the possibility of failure, rather than on perfection and meeting all your goals and the bottom line. I just think there needs to be greater integration.
1: Definitely. The search for perfection is, as I've discovered, fruitless. Um, parenting. Uh, I was very struck I hope you don't mind me raising this, about your parents sending you off to Russia <laughs> on your own. I'm was it so for, glad
2: was, you raised was this.
1: this. Was it for, how long was it for? Two, it was for a month. A month, a month, Oh, at the age of 13. Yeah. In like Novi something. <laughs> Novgorod. Novgorod. <laughs> Uh.
2: Do you know, I'm so glad you've asked me because no one's asked me about it. And I'm like, that's actually, a, a ma- it was a major thing for me. Yes, certainly was.
1: <laughs> Why did you get sent to Russia at the age of the to, to Nov- Novigrad?
2: Uh, it was such a good question, Ed. Uh, basically, so I grew up in Northern Ireland. I know I don't have the accent, but I did. And my secondary school in Belfast was the only school Um, in the entire province that taught Russian. And I, for some reason, because I suppose I've got a slightly contrarian nature, was like, I'm going to learn Russian. And um, I did. And I wasn't very happy at that school. And I left halfway through the year and I was still learning Russian. And my parents were like, well, it'd be really great for her to improve her language skills before she starts at her new school in the autumn. And they had in their head, I think, the notion of an exchange programme. But because this was like 1991... Um, there were no real exchange programs to sort of no. post-industrial. And there Russian wasn't any tats. bread either. There was no. <laughs> there was no fruit. I tell you what. No the, bana- the quest for a banana. The scurvy in 90s situation
1: Russia. was sort of serious. It
2: really was, and so they packed me off to Russia. And I think I did ask them about it recently when I was writing the book. I was like, why, how, and why did you do that? Because I was shit. And yeah, and my parents in a way were quite complimentary and they're like we thought you could deal with it because you were very mature and my father said i think it's better to have adventures than none at all and my mother said looking back now i'm not sure whether we would have made the same decision but it seemed the right thing to do at the time and to be fair i mean it how did it
1: affect you do you think
2: i came back fluent in russian yeah but um it affected me in uh, a more personal way in that I think I have a fear of abandonment. Yes, and not surprisingly,
1: giving <laughs> in Novi Watsitz for a month.
2: <laughs> I woke up that first morning, literally at the top floor of a tower block in Novgorod. There was no uh, running hot water, and I had jam in my tea for breakfast. I always remember that, and yeah. just not a lot of food. And I didn't understand the language. It was real immersion. And I remember waking up and you know that thing when you wake up and you think that you're in your own bed and then it takes you a while to remember where you are. And I had that and it was deep seated panic. And I realise now that I have that feeling when I have a breakup. That's the feeling that I wake up with every morning after that. So I think I, yeah, I have a slight fear of that. And it played into the people pleasing. I have a fear of people leaving me or packing me off somewhere. Um, And I have a fear of not being understood which so, I
1: suspect all children have, but then it can be sort of exacerbated or diminished. Yeah. Can't it?
2: Well, then, because after that, I, I got a scholarship to a boarding school and I ended up in boarding school. And really, at a boarding school, it was all girls boarding school and it's sink or swim there according to your popularity. So I went in very aware that it was a tricky environment to survive in and the best way to survive was to make as many friends as possible with the popular people now that again for a people pleaser and someone who's just been sent to russia for a month is not like a great combination and I'm very grateful for it. Don't, I, I don't regret any of it because it definitely fed into what made me See, a even writer. Even now, if
1: I may say so, you're having to say, oh, but, you know, it was fine. I know exactly this example. <laughs> you know, honestly, the advantages of Novigrad, Novigrad you
2: know, uh, I really I, I loved, just... <laughs> wouldn't exchange it for anything, you know, the jam <laughs> and the tea. I mean, I would never do it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hated it, but I'm so grateful, But so. right, If you
1: had a 13-year-old child, you would not send them to Novigrad a grad no I wouldn't I wouldn't no, I think that's, that's sort of rather interesting and I've
2: forgotten all of my Russian because it's a really hard like, unless you're practicing it all the time it's a hard language to
1: I feel like we on. could go on for hours and hours and hours but we can't Elizabeth Day the book is How to Fail I recommend it the podcast is How to Fail with Elizabeth Day I recommend that too thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you so much Ed
0: Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.